Well, and I want to welcome all of you joining us at a Quakertown campus. Uh, thanks for being with us today. And I have a favor uh, to ask of all of you up there. I haven't seen Carlos for the past couple of days. So before you leave this morning, would you guys at Quakertown ask Carlos how the New York Giants are enjoying their vacation? I thought it would be a good thing to do. Well, as you saw in the little uh, video that we're starting a new series today that we're calling The Prequel. And if you're a watcher of Stranger Things, that uh, video may have looked a little familiar to you. If you're not a watcher of Stranger Things, uh, this series will be about Stranger Things. Prequel, that's kind of a strange word. What exactly is a prequel? Well, if you uh, watch movies or maybe Broadway shows, you know something about a prequel. So here's how it works. A movie comes out and the movie may be really uh, famous and everybody goes and knows what's going on. Well, the producers of the movie want to make more money. So they figure out, well, you know, we're not quite sure where to take the story in the future. Let's do another movie about the backstory. So, for example, Godfather 2 is a prequel in a lot of ways to Godfather 1. Batman begins a prequel to the Batman movies, and you learn that little Bruce Wayne fell into the well and was afraid of bats down there, and that's kind of how it got started. If you're a Broadway show watcher, even on TV, the backstory to The Wizard of Oz is wicked, right? And if you're a Star Wars fan, they weren't content to have one prequel. They had a trilogy of prequels to tell you what came before and before and before. So a prequel is giving us the backstory to a story that we're familiar with. Well, that's what we're going to do in this series. We often talk about the main event of the Bible. The point and purpose of the scripture is Jesus. Well, there's a whole backstory to Jesus coming. There is a prequel to Jesus, and a lot of that is in the Old Testament. So we're going to take one slice of that big Old Testament for the next few weeks, the book of Judges, and we're going to look at that as a prequel to what Jesus is about and what Jesus does. So maybe a way to think of it is like this. Do you remember a, a while ago, wasn't that long ago, we did a series on 2 Timothy that we called Continuing What Jesus Started. Do you remember that? I see some of you have those little stickers on your car, whatever, don't put any on my car, by the way, but you have those little stickers. I wanted to call this series PWJS, preceding what Jesus started, but I got outvoted, so we're doing prequel. But you can vote as you leave by telling people you like my title better, uh, but anyway, next week we'll still have prequel up on, the shore, up on the screen, I'm sure. Well, anyway, the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles, you can kind of turn back there, find it on your phone. We're not going to look at any one particular passage. We're going to kind of jump around a little bit today. We're going to start by talking about the prequel to the prequel. And I got to tell you, I'm doing this message with fear and trembling. And here's why. Whenever you start a series on a book like Judges, that's rather unfamiliar. I know some of you are thinking, I know about Samson, you know, the long hair guy. Yeah, he's one of the judges. I remember hearing once about Gideon. Yeah, he's another one of the judges. But for the most part, the book of Judges is unfamiliar to us. In fact, one commentator says, the book of Judges is all about dysfunctional people doing deplorable things. And that really is true. In fact, if you want to write that or record that somewhere, dysfunctional people doing de de deplorable things, we're going to see that over and over and over again in the book of Judges. And I thought that would be a great series for us to do since we kind of fit that, well, excuse me. Uh, 
Well, here's why I'm afraid to start, to start the message. Some of you love background material, right? To look at the history and the backdrop, you love that stuff. Others of you are ready to start sleeping now. Others of you are looking at your watches already thinking, aren't we finished yet? Well, we have to understand some of the prequel to the prequel elements or the rest of the series isn't going to make sense. So kind of hang in there. If you like this stuff, good. If not, try to stay awake. Nobody leave. Um, I'll try to make it a little bit interesting so you can stay awake. But we need to know some prequel elements to the prequel in order for the prequel to make sense. Right? Well, here we go. The book of Judges begins with a funeral. That's kind of weird, right? Here's how the book of Judges begins. After the death of Joshua. That's a weird way to start a book, right? We start a book at, the fu- at a funeral. Well, what's the, what's the author of Judges saying? If you're going to understand this book, you have to understand that the book comes after Joshua. Now, here's something amazing. Check out later. If you were to go back and read the first verse of Joshua, you would read, after the death of Moses. Like the two books begin at funerals, right? Because both of the authors are saying to us, you can't understand this book unless you understand the prequel. We go to the prequel and it's saying you can't understand the prequel unless you understand the pre-prequel. Which means we have to know something about where we are in the story. So I thought we'd put our little story thing up here and in very short uh, um, sense tell you where we are in the story. We are at the front end of the third act. So remember how our story goes. God creates, Genesis 1 and 2. God is rejected. That happens in Genesis 3, and the results go on through the rest of the Bible. And then you have beginning of Act 3. And early on in Act 3, God promises we come to the book of Judges. So Judges is before Jesus. See that? That's why we're calling it a prequel. See, it makes sense. Jesus, the point and purpose, God appears. This series, the book of Judges, comes before that. It's in Act 3. Well, what has happened by way of characters to get us to the point of Judges? So remember the first verse, after the death of Joshua, but Joshua happens in the flow of the story. So let me mention some of the main characters that have already come on the scene and gone off the scene by the time we come to Judges. Abraham has come and gone, but Abraham's really, really important in the book of Judges for this reason. God gives to Abraham a bunch of promises, but one of the promises is, Abraham, I promise to give you and your descendants the promised land as your possession. Abraham never owned any land in the promised land except a cemetery plot. Abraham bought a cemetery plot for his wife, And that's the only land that Abraham ever owned in the promised land. In Judges, we see Abraham's descendants getting the inheritance. So you got to understand something about Abraham because they're getting the inheritance that God promised Abraham. And then after Abraham comes Isaac, and after Isaac comes Jacob. And remember, Jacob, uh, because of a famine in the land, winds up taking the whole family, all of Abraham's descendants, down to Egypt where Joseph is the prime minister. And Joseph essentially saves the whole family, all of Abraham's descendants, by allowing them to be fed because he stored the grain up with great wisdom and insight from God. But eventually the Egyptians forgot about all the good that Joseph had done for the country, and they enslave all of Abraham's descendants. 
So for 400 years, all of the descendants of Abraham are slaves in Egypt. Until God says one day, well, enough of this. And he raises up a rescuer named Moses. And he sends Moses back. And Moses leads all of millions of people now. Right? They multiplied quickly. No TV or radio back then. He leads all of the millions of people, the slaves, out of Egypt into the wilderness. And the story ends sadly. Moses isn't allowed to lead them into the promised land. The land that he promised Abraham. He's not allowed. That brings us to Joshua. Moses dies on the wrong side of the promised land. God raises up Joshua, the deliverer, the conqueror, the one who's going to bring victory. And it's Joshua that leads all of the descendants of Abraham into the promised land. Now they're into the promised land. They have a few military victories. But the land still isn't kind of inhabited by Abraham's descendants yet. That brings us to Judges. So all that's kind of, but you have to know that stuff, right? Now, you don't have to know all the details, but you have to know the broad strokes. We're at the beginning of Act 3, after, him, after Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, Moses, Joshua, Judges. All right? You got that picture. Well, what else do we need to know? Another thing that would be, hap- it would be helpful to know is something about an overview. Overview of the book and an overview of what Judges are. I really like books that have summary statements. And I love Judges because it is a summary statement. Now, it's not at the beginning. It actually appears a couple times. But the clearest summary statement is at the end of the book. Here's the summary statement of the book of Judges. Everyone did as they saw fit. Kind of sounds like America, right? And so let's let's, uh, just review some of the comments, songs, lyrics that we have in our day that support that theme. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do whatever I want to do. You don't own me. Right? That kind of sounds like the way, well, that's what's happening in the book of Judges. Everybody's doing whatever they want. They don't have a king, but more importantly, they're not living with God as their king. Everybody's doing what they think is best. You want to see what the results of that are? You don't have to read the book of Judges. Just watch the news tonight. Everybody does as they see fit, you wind up with the mess we're in. That's the theme of the book. Everybody's doing what they see fit. Everybody's doing what they think best. And it's an absolute mess. That's why we wind up with dysfunctional people doing despicable things. Because they're doing what they think is best. Now here's an important thing to keep in mind. It really is true that you can pretty much do whatever you want within reason. You're free to do whatever you want. But here's what you're not free to do. Once you choose to do whatever you want to do and you do it, you are no longer free to determine what happens by way of consequences or result. You can do whatever you want. But once you choose what you're going to do, you cannot choose the results or the consequences that come from doing that. Let me give you a couple of examples. You can choose to go home this afternoon, take a screwdriver out of your wife's toolbox, Push it into one of the receptacles in your house and hold on to the metal part. You are free to do that today. But once you shove it into that receptacle, you are no longer free to determine what happens next. You can go home today, borrow a neighbor's ladder, put it up on the side of your house. I don't know how high your roof is and climb all the way up to the roof. You're free to do that. 
So your neighbors don't think you're crazy. Pretend you're cleaning out the gutters, right? You're free to do that. You can climb onto the roof of your house. And maybe you still have a little snow up there. Thankful for the nice warm weather. Probably not. You are free to get onto the roof of your house. You are free to stand in the middle of the roof, run toward the edge, and swan dive off the roof. You are free to do that. But once you leave the roof, you are no longer free to determine what happens next. You are now completely bound by the law of gravity, and depending on how high your roof is, that will determine how big the puddle will be. You're free to not stop at any red light or not stop at any stop sign, just see it in, a few, in the distance and just blow through it. You're free to do that. You're not free to determine what happens when a car is coming the other way and you get T-boned in the intersection. And the Bible would say, and the book of Judges would repeat, you're free to disregard what God says. You're free to live as you see fit. You're free to determine your own choices and live them out. But once you choose to live apart from what God says, you are no longer free to determine the consequences and results of what comes. Therefore, choose carefully. Decide carefully. You are free and you're not free. Both of those statements are true. Well, that raises another question then. What the heck is a judge? You know, the book of Judges is all about judges, right? There are actually 12 of them. Six major, six minor. That has nothing to do with how important they were. It has to do with how much stuff we know about them, right? And you know some of the major ones, right? Deborah, Gideon, Samson, you know those guys. You don't know some of the minor ones. Uh, you may not know them at the end of the series either. But that's kind of the idea. What are judge? Well, when I say the word judge, what image comes to your mind? My guess is some of you think of Judge Judy. How many of you thought of Judge Judy? Be honest, yeah. She's an arrogant cuss, isn't she? Uh, and here's, whenever I, you know, sometimes I get home, I watch a little bit of Judge Judy. She's entertaining, right? But here's the question I always ask when I'm watching Judge Judy. Who in their right mind would ever air their dirty laundry and go to a non-court court and allow her to determine. So everybody in the whole country can watch what you did, you moron you. But I know what possesses Judge Judy to do that. Judge Judy makes $48 million a year doing that. She is the highest paid TV personality in the world. $48 million. Now I know why she does it. I'm not sure why all the other people do it. But you got to get that picture out of your mind. A few months ago, I got called for jury duty. So I was all set to waste an entire day. I don't read the jury summons real carefully. I show up at Montgomery County Courthouse, go in, I'm told to sit over here. You're like cattle once you get there, right? Sit over here. But I knew something was up. When we didn't get called in small groups, like a hundred of us, all were called at the same time, and we go in and sit in the largest courtroom in uh, Montgomery County Courthouse. So we're all seated in the, I'm in the last row, near the door, thank goodness, right? So we're all sitting there. So we're waiting, waiting, waiting. You're always waiting when you're in court. Eventually, this little judge, we have to stand up, and the guy's, oi, oi, all that kind of stuff, right? And you have to be nice to the judge because he's the one that can get you out of jury duty, right? So you don't want to mess up now. I don't find out until then that my jury duty summons was for grand jury duty. The first thing the judge says is, uh, some of you probably didn't look at your jury summons carefully. That was me. 
just in case you didn't look, this is for grand jury. The minimum term is 18 months. I'm thinking, are you serious? 18 months? Well, I'll have you all know, I pled that I'm a shepherd of a congregation, <laughs> a very helpless, whiny, high-maintenance sheep, and I got out. So thank you all for doing that for me. But that's not the picture either. You don't think Judge Judy, don't think a judge that determines guilt or innocence at a trial with a gavel and a rope, that's not the picture. In fact, you need to think of something completely different. Here's a verse that may help you. When the people, right, Abraham's descendants, when they cry out to the Lord, God raised up for them a deliverer. That's a judge. That, that's the judge. A judge in this book is a rescuer, a deliverer. Almost all of them, they're warriors. They kill people in very gross ways. I mean, this is really, this is like Braveheart, this series, right? I mean, blood and guts, the dysfunctional people, despicable things. That's what this book's about. Judges are warriors. Judges bring deliverance, bring freedom to people that are enslaved, people that are in bondage and oppressed. That's what judges are. So get the picture out of your head, you know, with a sanitized judge in a black robe with a hammer at a big desk. No, these guys are fighters. These guys are warriors. And God is the one that raises them up. Now, something else you have to know is that the book of Judges is kind of a sad book because the people drop the ball in a couple of different ways. Let me show you. Next verse. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the elders. But by the time we come to Judges, Joshua and the elders are all gone. What's the result? Everybody, do, everybody does what they see fit. Okay, now you see the point? When Joshua's on the scene, everybody's following Joshua. And Joshua is following God for the most part. Joshua works with the elders, the people close to him. And as long as the elders are following Joshua, everybody's kind of doing what God wants them to do. Joshua now is gone, the elders are gone, and now what happens, everybody does what they see fit. Somehow the ball got dropped. Joshua, elders, eh. Remember 2 Timothy? We kept using the run well, pass the baton metaphor. They didn't do either. Joshua and the elders, they ran okay. Somehow the baton got dropped between the elders and the people. You know what the moral of that story is? Following God and continuing what Jesus started is always just one generation from extinction. Just one. Guys, if we don't run well and pass the baton, there is no plan B. And if you think we live in the world of judges, just imagine if there were no people in the world that were seeking to follow God and continue what Jesus started. We've got an important responsibility to run well and pass the baton. So that's kind of what's going on. They failed to do that. Well, I want to uh, m mention one more thing, and that's about perspective, perspective. I thought about perspective on Thursday night. Kim and I went to the Flyers game Thursday night to see Eric Lindros, number 88, raised to the rafters and retired forever. Kim is like a major Eric fan, and because of that, she hates Bobby Clark's guts. So we go, and, and uh, first thing she says, we sit down and say, that Bobby Clark better not go out onto that ice at all. Uh, uh, excuse me. For, I won't say that next service. She'll be here. <laughs> so we go, and it was a great evening. 
But it was kind of interesting. I watched a little bit of the game from two different perspectives. Um, I watched a few minutes of the game, or actually a section of the game, from section 120, row 6. Six seats from the ice. You know what? You see grimaces on their face. You see the speed of play. You see the pucks flying at the goalie. You're hoping that glass holds when they bang into you. There was no blood, which kind of disappointed me. But, uh, you know, it's happening right in front of you. Now, when things are down the other end, you're kind of trying to see it. You know, the glass a little distorted. So I watched some game from 120, row 6, and the perspective was up close and personal. I watched some of the game from Club Box 10. Now, Club Box 10, you're kind of above the ice, and you kind of look down, you see the people skate, you see the plays form, and I was at the other end, so I saw people shooting down here. Same game, two different perspectives. Interestingly, often when you read the Bible, you will read of two different perspectives. So, for example, in Genesis 1, you read of creation from one perspective. You read Genesis 2, you read of creation again from a different perspective. Here's what I want to show you. Judges 1 and Judges 2 give us two different perspectives. Okay, here's Judges 1. The Lord was with the men of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. So God says, enter the land, right? You divide up the land by tribes. So Judah, you get this. Issachar, you get that. All the tribes get different land. Then they say, okay, God, who should go first? God says, Judah, you go first. Judah goes to take their part of the land. As they go out, Judah attacks. They take the land, run into a problem. Here's the problem. They were unable to drive the... No, 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 go back. I haven't done that yet. <laughs> they want to go home. The Eagles game's a long time away. We have a lot of time. <laughs> but they were unable to drive the people from the plain because they had iron chariots. The people of Judah didn't have iron chariots. I mean, iron chariots, they were like the smart bombs. They were the drones. They were the smart tanks of the day. The people that lived there had iron chariots. The Judahites, they didn't have any chariots. They were on foot. They didn't have horses. So we couldn't drive them out. That makes perfect sense, right? God says drive them out, but God, we tried God, but we can't. In fact, as you read the rest of Judges 1... It gets worse and worse and worse. Judah didn't drive him out. Manasseh didn't drive him out. Zebulun didn't drive him out. Asher didn't drive him out. Naphtali didn't drive him out. Because the people that live there are entrenched. And they have superior weaponry. And they have better training. And they can't do it. That's the perspective. That's the details. That's the perspective from the people that won't drive him out. Judges chapter 2 tells the same story. It's the second introduction. Two introductions to the book. But Judges 2 is from God's perspective. Now you can turn the slide. There we go. Same incident, a different perspective. God says, I brought you up out of Egypt. Remember Moses? I brought you up out of Egypt. Into the land I swore to give your ancestors. Abraham. So you got to know all that. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. 
The people say, we can't do it. God says, you disobeyed me, you won't do it. I can't, you won't. Which is it? I was thinking about that. Two perspectives on our lives too, aren't there? How often do we look at life from our perspective, from what's going on in our situation, and we're very quick to say, but God, you don't understand. You don't know how difficult it is. I know you tell me, be honest in all situations. I, tell, I know you tell me to live generously. I know you tell me to forgive. I know you tell me to continue what Jesus started. And I tried and tried and tried. I just can't. And God says, can't? How about won't? See, here's the problem. The Israelites did not have a lack of strength. They had a lack of faith in the strength of their God. That was their problem. They saw the iron chariots. They said, we can't. We saw the, they saw the superior weapons. We can't. God says, it's not a lack of strength. Your problem is you have a lack of faith in my strength. So when you look at generosity but Lord look at my bank account I can't Lord you say to forgive but you don't know what's in my heart you don't know that person I can't God you tell me to be honest but if I don't get this deal done I can't God says you don't have a lack of strength you have a lack of faith in my strength that's the problem interesting how uh, pointed the book is already isn't it two perspectives chapter one our perspective on life. Chapter 2, God's perspective. Here's the moral of that story. If there's a conflict between your perspective and God's, go with his. All right? I'm just saying. If there's a little bit of a difference with God's perspective, go with his perspective. It'll work out better, I promise. I don't know how. It'll work out better, I promise. All right, let me show you one other thing. A cycle that you're going to see repeated in the book over and over and over and over and over again. The cycle of rescue. Four stages. Here's how it goes. Over and over and over again. Happens like six times in a book. The cycle usually begins with rebellion. Now, what's rebellion? God, I know what you want me to do, but I got a different plan. Right? That's what Rebellion may be active. Rebellion may be blatant disobedience. Or rebellion may be, eh, I don't think so. I'm going to do it my way. Rebellion. God says this, you do that. God says here, you go there. Right? Rebellion. You do what God tells you not to do. You don't do what God tells you to do. That's rebellion. Inevitably, since we don't get to choose the consequences of our actions, we get to choose our actions, oppression follows not doing what God tells you to do. You know that from your own life, right? If you live apart from how God tells you to live, you bear the consequences and the results of that. We all do. God designed the universe. He says, live in sync with my plan. Live in sync with the universe. And when we do, we get the benefits of that. And when we don't, we get crushed by living out of sync with what God made. God doesn't give us his commands to make our lives miserable. God gives us commands so that we'll live in sync with how he made things to be. Oppression follows rebellion every time. And you're going to hear that story over and every week, over and over and over. You're going to hear it. You're going to see this cycle. So get the cycle. Write it down somewhere. You're going to see it. And then comes repentance. Notice I have a question mark. That doesn't mean sometimes it happens, sometimes it don't. It means most of the time it's not genuine. 
what happens almost always is people cry out to God. God, 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 please help us. They're not crying because they want to now live in sync with God. They're crying because the pain is real bad. And here's the problem. When you're in the midst of pain, God has your attention, doesn't he? It's funny how that works. You know, God has, and God has lots of tools in his box to get your attention. God has your attention. But here's my problem, and maybe you share it. When I'm in pain, my main goal is to get rid of the pain. My main goal is not to follow God more faithfully, to have Jesus the priority. That's not my, my goal is for the hurting to stop. That's what I want. And that's kind of what happens here. They cry out to God with flowery language. Oh, Lord, we'll do whatever you want forever and ever and ever. But they don't really mean it most of the time. And amazingly, graciously, unbelievably, God rescues them. And he rescues them by raising up a judge, the deliverer, the rescuer. That's what he does. So if you learn that cycle... You basically know the outline of Judges over and over and over and over again. The players change. The country that's oppressing, the nation that's beating them down, and the rescuer, they all change. The cycle remains the same. Oh, yeah, and by the way, the cycle still remains the same. You can live any way you want to live. You can disregard what God says, live in passive or blatant rebellion to what he says. You will bear the consequences. Once you choose and make your decision, you can't determine the consequences or results. You'll bear the consequences of that. And if it's apart from God, to a major degree or a minor degree, you're going to be experiencing pain because you're living out of sync with the God and his plan and he designed the universe. And hopefully, sooner rather than later, God will get your attention. And you won't just use words with sincerity and genuineness of your heart, you'll turn back. Repentance just means turn and say, Lord, I've been living this way. I need to turn around and come back to you and live this way. And amazingly, God rescues us, doesn't he? Now, here's an interesting thing. That cycle that you'll see repeated in the book of Judges over and over and over is the main theme and the cycle of the whole Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, the people that God made in his image rebel against him. And all hell breaks loose as we experience it, the consequence, consequences and results of living apart from God. And we cry out in our pain and we cry out in our agony, oppression, injustice, we cry out to God. And God did send a rescuer, not a dysfunctional one, not one who does deplorable things. God sent the ultimate rescuer. His name's Jesus. And he rescues people that don't deserve to be rescued. That's the cycle of the Bible and the cycle of judges over and over and over. Well, I didn't want to end with just the prequel, so I thought we'd end with the sequel. What's the sequel? You may be sitting there thinking, okay, well, I, I got some oppression in my life, and Primarily, he's my boss. He's my husband. She's my wife. He's my parent, my child. I've got an oppression. Yeah, wait a minute, wait a minute. You don't live out the cycle. God's not going to raise up some warrior to come and take your boss out this week, all right? And don't you go do that either. That's not the plan. 
All right? There are some similarities. The cycle's the same. The means are very different. So I wanted to show you the sequel just so you don't leave beating on people, all right? Let the eagles beat on some people today, but not you, not you. Here's the sequel from 1 John. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You know, if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, well, I rebel. I don't really rebel. I don't rebel passively. I don't rebel, you know, overtly. I'm, I'm kind of doing what God. Yeah, really? If you claim to be without sin, you're deceiving yourself. You're experiencing some of the consequences of living out of sync with God, aren't you? Sure you are. And we don't have time to name them all, but I know you are and I know I am. That's not because God's trying to make our lives miserable. It's because he's saying, okay, you want to live apart from me? Let me know how that's going to work for you, all right? Get back in sync with what I'm doing. But look at this. Here's the repentance part. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's, so we rebel passively and actively. God says, you're bearing the consequences. I don't want you to bear the consequences. When you confess your sin, when you cry out to him in repentance, and notice, he always takes us back to the rescuer. You're not forgiven, you're not restored, you're not rescued because you've repented. It's not the eloquence of your prayer. It's not because you really, really mean it. You are only rescued because God sent a rescuer. Look at the next couple of verses. My dear children, I write this to, this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, I'm glad he has that little phrase. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate, a rescuer. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. Live the sequel as we learn the prequel. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for telling us the same thing over and over and over again. In different ways, in funny stories, with sometimes dysfunctional characters and deplorable means. Lord, help us to learn the lesson. The lesson that we need to be rescued. The lesson that you sent a rescuer. And the lesson that his name is Jesus. And life only makes sense as we follow him and as we continue what he started. Guide us and direct us as we seek to do that in our world, showing us what to do, giving us the courage to say yes, rather than being driven by the fear that says no. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, we're going to end the service by singing together.